One of my favorite areas to study is first ladies. I find these women endlessly compelling and few more so than first lady Edith Wilson, the second wife of President Woodrow Wilson, who we are discussing on the show today. Edith met, fell in love with, and married President Wilson in front of the world stage as he was already president at the time. After they married in December 1915, she saw him through his re-election in 1916, and in 1919, he suffered a debilitating stroke, a stroke that his wife desperately tried to cover up and shield from the public. To do so, she essentially became acting president from October 1919 all the way until the end of his second term on March 4th, 1921. To talk about this and the woman that was Edith Wilson, I have on the show today Rebecca Boggs Roberts, author of the newly released Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. This is Rebecca's fifth book, and she is currently Deputy Director of Events at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. Take a listen. Rebecca, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So today we are talking about Edith Wilson. It's the second of President Woodrow Wilson's first ladies. His first wife, Ellen, passed away in the middle of his administration. Then he met and courted and married Edith very quickly. We're going to talk about all of these things. And I find this quote fascinating. It's actually from the end of the book. You write, she, meaning Edith Wilson, would go on to become the most powerful woman in the nation. She would go on further to pretend she was nothing of the kind. So let's start here. So prior to meeting President Woodrow Wilson, who was Edith? How would you describe her? Edith's story is one of those that had she been a man would be hailed as sort of an American dream up by your bootstraps Mm -hmm. success story. Uh, She was born in Western Virginia in a town called Whitfield in 1872. She had um, somewhat constrained circumstances in her childhood. Her family had been tobacco planters in the James River and enslaved uh, laborers. And when the Civil War happened and they had to actually pay their labor, that could no longer uh, be sustained. So they moved to this funny little series of rooms over storefronts in Withville. And she was the sixth of nine kids. And there were two grandmothers and various aunts and uncles and other cousins and hangers on. And it was crowded. Um, So (laughs) she definitely could have gotten lost in that shuffle. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she was very smart and she was very confident. And she surprisingly for that time and place was actually quite ambitious, not in terms of professional ambition, but in terms of of being a person of substance. And so she left Withville as a teenager, came here to Washington, D.C. She had a sister who was living here who was married um, to a D.C. native. And um, she kind of reinvented herself in Gilded Age Washington into Mm -hmm. this you know, sophisticated, stylish, attractive, um, sought after person, married um, a man named Norman Galt, inherited his fancy jewelry store when he died and had no kids. So then in addition to being stylish and sought after, she now has some money and independence that women didn't really get in the first part of the 20th century because mm-hmm. she was beholden to no man, right? She she didn't have kids. Um, she ran her own business. She had access to all of her own money. There was nobody telling her what to do with it. And she was 
enjoying that life quite a bit. That is who she was when she caught the eye of the president. Well, then she caught the eye of the president. So tell us about how they met. So President Wilson was president already. As I said, he had lost his first wife, Ellen, to Bright's disease just a year before they married. So Ellen dies in 1914. So what happens then? How long is President Wilson a bachelor or a widow, not a bachelor, rather, um, before he meets Edith? Because their courtship was very quick because they married in 1915. So it didn't take him very long. Yeah, it, it was all very quick. And that is not to say he wasn't heartbroken over Ellen. I don't want to say that he was like, oh, yeah, ho-hum, let's, let's move on to the right. next wife. Because he, he loved her all, very much. Anybody that studied Wilson much. knows that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and he was devastated and he was heartbroken and lonesome. And his doctor, Carrie Grayson, who was a personal friend of Edith's, was really worried about him. And so he kind of engineered Edith meeting uh, first Um, Woodrow Wilson's cousin, Helen Bones, who was doing any of the remaining First Lady stuff that had to be done in a White House in mourning where there wasn't much going on. But she was lonesome too. And so Edith, on Carrie's recommendation, befriended Helen Bones. And between Carrie Grayson and Helen Bones, they engineered for Woodrow and Edith to meet. And This was March of 1915 when Ellen had died in August of 1914, so not very long afterwards at all. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, Woodrow Wilson fell in love head over heels at more or less first sight. He was just (laughs) absolutely done for the second um, Edith Bowling Galt stepped off the elevator. She took a little while longer. Mm hmm. Well, yeah, she turned down his proposal at one point, right? Well, it was five weeks after they met. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, I don't blame her, but she did. But that's, I mean, turning down the president's proposal, just, you know, she basically, Edith developed a public persona overnight as they met and fell in love. And, you know, have you ever seen the movie, The American President with Michael Douglas? Sure. Annette Bidding. It's a little bit reminiscent to me of a 1915 version of that movie. We are so not used to our presidents dating and falling in love before our eyes. I mean, most of our presidents have been married for many, many years. And so how would you describe that courtship? Because he courted her pretty mightily, right? He really did. And it was largely in letters, which yay for a historian. That means, you know, it's all (laughs) written down and you get to read their mail a hundred years later. And his letters were vulnerable and almost steamy sometimes. I mean, he was just laying it all out there about how beautiful she was and how perfect she was in every way and how much he wanted to kiss her Mm -hmm. eyelids. And she um, was really holding back, I think, because she had so much to lose. I mean, not only would marrying anyone mean that she would give up that vaunted independence, but marrying the president should yeah. give up all privacy entirely. Absolutely. So she kept changing the subject. Her letters kill me because, you know, he'll say, you're beautiful form. I dreamed of you, blah, blah, blah. And she'll say, you know, let's talk about the Carranza government in Mexico. What do you think's going on there? <laughs> and she keeps focusing him on politics. Uh, he finally caught on. His letters get more uh, indiscreet about political matters as mm-hmm. the summer wears on. And finally, she told him she'd marry him if he lost re-election. She was willing to marry him, but she wasn't <laughs> willing to marry the president. Um, and he, all he heard was, I'll marry you, and started telling everyone they were engaged. So by the fall of 1915, she finally said, all right, I'm in. Win or lose, I'm in. And they got married in December of 1915. 
So the president, as you write in the book, was just simply obsessed with her. So what what was it about Edith, do you think? What was what was so compelling to him? I think there were she was appealing on a lot of levels. She was very different from Ellen, which is also interesting. Ellen was this academic, um, accomplished painter, great as a professor's wife. You know, she she didn't mind all the students hanging around, but she really was not comfortable in the national limelight. The gossip columns talked about how badly she dressed and how dowdy she was and she was shy and it just really was not her natural habitat. And I'm not cynical enough to say that that Woodrow picked Edith because she was better at those things. I he you know one glance at those letters makes it clear his affections were sincere. Mm-hmm. But she was and she was sort of a better fit for that part of his life. She was beautifully dressed. She was uh, incredibly confident. She put everyone at ease. Her social manners were um, absolutely adapted to becoming first lady, which is a bananas job, right? It's a really mm-hmm. hard job. Sure. And um, she made him laugh and uh, she sort of pushed him out. He was also quite shy and she kind of pushed him out of his shell a little bit. And um, he just couldn't believe that this you know, lovely, glamorous woman looked at him twice. And she came to really appreciate that he thought she was smart. You know, I think that she had been told she was beautiful every day of her life, but had not had that many people tell her she was smart and certainly not the president of the United States who was known for his intellectualism, right? Still our only president with a PhD who had cultivated this very, you know, academic high-minded reputation. So for him to tell her she's smart and he values her opinion and her, her vote on what he's doing politically matters more than his closest confidants, think how heady that was. Sure, sure. Well, they do marry in 1915, as you said, the end of 1915. She hated the first lady title, which I found I really love reading about first ladies. I think I've read about almost all of them at this point. And I found that is a common theme amongst first ladies. They don't like the uh, Jacqueline Kennedy called said that first lady sounded like the name of a horse. And so, <laughs> um, so how, so there are four uh, roughly little, yeah, roughly because the stroke happened in late 1919. So about four years before the stroke. And of course, we'll talk about that in a moment. But how was she as first lady prior to President Wilson's stroke? 1916 was an election year. So they're on the campaign trail, a good percentage of it. She was pretty good at that. She never gave speeches, but she didn't mind all of that, you know, handshaking and uh, had sort of trot her out on the back of a train platform to look pretty. And she was, you know, good at um, making sure the host felt appreciated and that sort of thing. And then by, you know, spring of 1917, the U.S. was involved in World War One, So she became a wartime first lady, mm-hmm. which is its own weird circumstance on top of just the profoundly weird circumstance of being first lady. So she, um, took to that role of sort of public example of shared sacrifice. She was one of the first to adopt the food conservation methods, made sure that her food conservation card was displayed very prominently in the windows of the White House. She brought in sheep to mow the grass so that the landscaping crew at the White House could be freed up for other war work. And the sheep also became this sort of symbol of shared sacrifice. She auctioned off their wool to benefit the Red Cross. And she worked at a Red Cross canteen and she, that without talking into any live microphones herself, she never gave interviews, 
she set that example of what a country banding together for a greater good could look like. Mm -hmm. um, and then the war ended and the president insisted on going to Paris himself to negotiate the treaty. And she went with him. She went everywhere he went. Yeah. And they were gone the better part of six months, which is, you know, in an era before global telecommunications, pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because she was there and because it was of vital international import, those negotiations, she's there in every picture with the King and Queen of England. She's there up on the dais accepting the award, um, being on this stage on the front page of international newspapers. So just by showing up, she elevated the first lady role to international stature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting too, to point out the changing role of women during her time as first lady, which was from 1915 to 1921. So when she became the most powerful woman in the nation, which again, we'll talk about at length in just a moment, women still did not have the right to vote, which is just wild to me that she is basically running the country and she couldn't even vote at that time. Cause this was right around that this late 1919 into 1920. So without further ado, let's talk about the end of 1919, the beginning of 1920 around the time the president has his stroke. So before we talk about the stroke itself, what is going on at that time politically? They came back from Paris in um, the early summer of 1919 and the battle to ratify the treaty in the Senate began. And it was a pitched battle. There were many contrarian voices that did not want to ratify the treaty at all. And some that didn't want to ratify it as written, want to compromise. The president refused to compromise. He decided that the document he had helped hammer out was the only option. It was all or nothing. And um, this went on throughout the summer of 1919, kind of to the exclusion of all else. The, the 19th Amendment was finally passed by Congress and going to the states for ratification. Uh, prohibition was gaining momentum, things like that. But it, the president was focusing almost exclusively on getting the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations ratified. And he was losing. And so he decided what he needed to do was go on a cross-country train tour to drum up public support for the league on the theory that then the public would pressure their elected officials to support the, the treaty. It was a terrible idea. He was exhausted. He had gotten sick in Paris. It was 1918. There was a flu epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, he was never the most robust specimen to begin with. And you don't take an exhausted sick man and put him on a thousand degree train and have him shake a hundred hands a day and truck him across thousands right. of miles. It's just a recipe for disaster. Right. And it was just as bad as everyone expected it to be. And he collapsed on the train outside of Pueblo, Colorado. The train comes rushing back here to Washington. He was sort of okay enough at that point to wave to the crowds at the train station, goes back to the White House to rest. And Dr. Kerry Grayson is putting out these very vague statements that he's suffering from nervous indigestion or nervous exhaustion or things that are not actual diagnoses. I have and never heard of nervous indigestion. No, it's not a thing. <laughs> No, <laughs> I've heard of indigestion, but never nervous. Right. right. No, it doesn't mean anything. And uh, so on October 2nd, he collapsed completely from a massive stroke. Uh, his whole left side was paralyzed. 
for, for several days, his life really hung in the balance. But even once he was kind of out of the woods, he was not a well man. He couldn't get out of bed. He, his speech was slurred. He found it hard to follow conversations. His concentration ebbed and flowed. And um, he, he was really, truly not okay. Um, as Edith tells it in her memoir, which is an unreliable source, but this is her version of events. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctors said to her, if he faces any stress, if he gets too much exercise, if he faces too many worries, he's going to die. So in other words, if he's the president, he's going to die. Right. But if he quits, he's going to die because the only thing he's living for is to see the U.S. be involved in the League of Nations. So if he quits, you've taken away his only motivation for getting well. So he can't be the president, but he can't quit. And P.S., if he dies, world peace will never be achieved. That's how high the stakes are. Yeah, no pressure. No No pressure. pressure. So from Edith's point of view, her only option, as she thought of it, was to do his job for him until he was better enough to do it himself, which is preposterous, right? No one elected Edith to anything. Well, I, I, yes, but also I'm like, she's going to step in and she's going to do it. Like I kind of admire her right. for this too. And right. so she is just very tough minded of her. So, okay. So how incapacitated is president Wilson at this point? Can he speak? Can, can he, he's not supposed to be under stress, but is he able to speak? Is he able to comprehend? Not clear because they all lied about it. Yeah. He definitely was sicker than they let on the way Edith worked. It was, she told everybody, particularly Congress and the cabinet, that if they had business that they needed the president's input on, they needed to put it in writing and send it to her. And she would bring back an answer also in writing. Mm-hmm. Was she consulting him about what she wrote back? She said so. Maybe she was. Maybe she was some of the time. Maybe she was most of the time. There were certainly times when she wasn't. Mm-hmm. And how long that went on he did improve he never got truly better so she really did take the reins of the executive branch for months she was the one deciding what to bring to him at all what answer to return what public statements to draft who got to see him which was almost no one right um and you know inaction has its consequences then they'd know Mm-hmm. And inaction has its consequences too. You know, the things that she let slide also had implications. So it it was a triumvirate, her, Carrie Grayson, and, and the president's secretary, Joe Tumulty. And the three of them are really the only ones who truly know how ill he was and how long it lasted, including mm-hmm. the president. They never let him know how sick he was. Wow. So as you said, Edith wanted to pretend everything was fine. So she basically becomes our president. She becomes acting president. And you write that she had the most political power of any first lady in history. So how much power did she actually wield? Was she the brains behind the decisions of the Wilson administration during this time? I don't think she did anything he wouldn't have done. I don't mm-hmm. think she pursued an agenda of her own. She knew his mind pretty well. She knew his priorities. That's why she felt confident doing this insane thing. And 
So I don't know that the Wilson administration helmed by Edith did anything all that different from what the Wilson administration helmed by Woodrow would have done. Mm -hmm. I think the real difference comes in keeping him so isolated. He was kept from all criticism and all bad news. So he didn't know what the voters wanted and he didn't know that he was unpopular and that the league was unpopular and that the nation really wanted to move on to someone like Warren Harding who was promising a return to normalcy. And he lost such touch with political reality because he was kept in such an echo chamber that even had she been consulting his judgment on everything, his judgment was bad because he didn't have all the information. Um, and so it's ultimately the Democrats more or less forfeited the 1920 election uh, because he was such, he was so deluded about his own health that he floated the idea of potentially running for a third term, mm. which not only would he never have survived, he never would have won. Right. And so he dragged his feet so long on, on withdrawing that no heir apparent stepped forward. So it's, you know, it's hard to play what if with history. You don't really know how things would have gone under other circumstances. But even if she did not, you know, champion some legislative initiative that he would not have done, there's no question that um, his own path of what he would have done changed because of her actions. This is one of the most endlessly, and this might be the most fascinating first lady story of all time to me. And because, and it was so shrouded in secrecy as well. How long did this go on for? Did it go on for the rest of his administration? <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the other part that's astounding. It went on. Um, he wasn't seen in public at all from October, 1919 to April, 1920. Even then they kind of propped him up in a car and drove him around town. Uh-huh. He was not actively involved until summer of 1920 when he started to actually meet with his cabinet. But even then, very limited time, very uh, orchestrated and choreographed so that he wasn't in a position of not knowing what was going on or having to ad lib anything. And uh, he didn't give big speeches. He didn't leave the White House. Um, and mm -hmm. so then the, you know, election of 1920 happened and Warren Harding was elected and and Edith sort of kept up this public face on his behalf until uh, the Hardings moved in in March of 1921. So that is my math is correct about 16 months right this can you wow. imagine no I can't and and the and the wild thing was everyone believed that Wilson was fine and he was still running the nation and this was just such a secret so this is a two-part question what was Edith's day-to-day -day life like during this period is part one and how was this secret kept I mean granted this is 1919 and 1920 it's not as though we have television and social media and the intrusiveness that we do today but still that's that's pretty unbelievable that this secret was kept so the two-parter is what was her day-to-day -day life like during this period and how was that secret kept that Edith was basically running the country her day was very routine there was a a medical feeling that stroke patients uh, benefited from knowing exactly what their day would look like. And so his day, he was woken at the same time, put in the same wheelchair, rolled to the same table, fed the same meal, shown a movie, 
rolled back to bed. So her day was kind of arranged around those moments in his so that she could be sitting next to him at the meal, hold his hand during the movie. So she'd get up early, she'd go through all the correspondence that had accrued because everyone knew to write and everyone knew to write to her, Mm -hmm. make some decisions, have some meetings, be there when he was up, stay with him until he went back to bed and then go back to the correspondence um, and take the meetings that he was not able to take. It was, the secret was very well kept to the extent of how sick he was. It was not complete lockdown. Not everyone thought he was fine. There were objections, uh, even within his own cabinet. His Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, raised objections. Republican members of the Senate raised objections. A few um, enterprising members of the press raised objections. They were just completely stonewalled. Um, And with Edith controlling who got to the White House, they didn't have any ability to answer those questions. They could just ask them. And when they got to feel like a little bit of a fever pitch when enough people were saying, if the president's okay, we want to see him. And if he's not okay, we should know that. Um, Edith and Joe Tumulty and Carrie Grayson would engineer a friendly interview with a, a journalist who could be counted on not to tell the truth. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, again, like, I, I mean, I've read the book. I've even had time to process the book since I read the book. And I still just hearing you talk about this, this is, this is wild. So um, it's wild. It is. So let me ask you this. Do you think we've already had our first female president for 16 months? Do, have we had our first, although we did not know it. And I say we, as if either of us were alive in, at this time, we were not, but do you think we've already had our first female president? I think you have to use the word acting because we will have a duly elected female president and I don't ever want to take away from her accomplishment. And I think we will have that in my lifetime and I look forward to voting for her. Um, Acting female president to the degree that anybody was chief executive of the United States at the end of 19 and beginning of 1920, Edith Wilson was the chief executive of the United States. Mm. She had no business doing that. I mean, I want to emphasize even if you're sort of impressed with her gumption, it was completely unconstitutional. Sure, um, yeah. So yeah, first acting female president, that I'll, that I'll allow. Wow. So what do you think she should have done, Rebecca? Do you think that, that they should have been transparent about his health and let Wilson's vice president step in? Do you think that's what should have yeah. happened? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, the, the 25th Amendment didn't exist. So the mechanism by which the vice president stepped in was really muddy. There's some language in the constitution about it. It's not clear whether the vice president becomes president or acting president. And most crucially, it's not clear who makes that call, who is assigned to say that the president is incapacitated because anybody who might have the authority to make that call was not willing to do so. And Mm -hmm. also the vice president was a little bit of a clown. He was a guy named Marshall, Thomas Marshall. He he, he enjoyed playing this sort of court jester role. He had great quippy one-liners. He wasn't really known for anything else. And he wanted no part of the presidency. So if you've got a vice president you're not super confident in who doesn't want to be there and, and the succession rules are murky, then I, I get why they decided mm-hmm. something else. But the president couldn't be president. And when the president can't be president, 
the person elected to sub for him should be president. That is yeah. how the system is supposed to work. Yeah. And the person elected to sub for him was not his wife. It was yeah. his vice president. Correct. So after the White House, which they leave in 1921, Edith could finally exhale. You write, she lived for a long time after leaving the White House until 1961. So that's 40 more years. So yeah. what, what were these years like for her? So he died in 1924 um, and she stayed here in Washington and uh, kind of went back to being that fabulous wealthy widow about town. She traveled all over. She um, hosted lovely parties. She uh, wore fabulous gowns and good hats. Um, she also knew that she had a role to play for future first ladies because she was here in Washington. Mm -hmm. So she invited all incoming first ladies to tea, regardless of party, uh, to sort of say, I, I know this is a crazy job and, and I'm here if you need backup. Um, and then she really devoted her time to burnishing Woodrow's legacy. So she showed up at everything. Every time someone was unveiling a statue or naming a train station or, you know, dedicating some kind of a scholarship, she was there and she made sure that he was hailed as this heroic visionary of world peace. And, you know, now we're, we're all kind of revisiting the image of Woodrow Wilson as heroic. Things are getting renamed that had been named for him. People are reminding uh, each other about the less heroic parts of his legacy. What's fascinating to me is how much of that myth, the myth we're now tearing down, mm -hmm. was Edith's myth. She spent a good part of the 37 years she outlived him burnishing that myth and making sure that that was the reputation we all received. Well, I'm wondering, did people know during her lifetime, because she lived 40 years after all of this happened, the extent of her leadership as acting president? When, basically, when did this begin to be known that this happened? Yeah, it kind of trickled out because everyone in that administration wrote a memoir. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were some insiders who had a vested interest in perpetuating the lie. There were some outliers who, who, who didn't know any different. But there, there were starting to be, after Wilson died, some acknowledgement of how sick he really was in his last year. She wrote a memoir that published in 1939, and she was probably franker about things, although cloaked with many rationalizations mm -hmm. um, than other people had been. But, you know, if you read her obituaries, they all bring it up. It's, it's not like it was something that wasn't known. It's just that some people found it justified and others didn't. Mm. Well, the title to that point, the subtitle of the book, mentions quote unquote her complex legacy so is this why her legacy is complex is because maybe she shouldn't have done that yeah I mean somebody asked me recently if I if I liked Edith Wilson <laughs> and <laughs> I I think I I would really enjoy her company she was she was funny and she was smart and she put everybody at ease I think that's a different question from do you admire Edith Wilson yeah and I I think what she did was undemocratic. And I think that the um, democratic experiment only survives if people play by the rules. And mm -hmm. so while I do think there's a lot about her story that is fascinating and a lot of her legacy has been couched in sexist garbage that I very much want to counteract, I'm not willing to say she was some perfect heroine, 
Uh, first of all, that's just bad, boring history, mm-hmm. but it is complex. What, what she did was, was not the way the American experiment is supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is, I mean, you're not, you are not wrong. I've always just kind of thought that, you know, Edith had all this gumption and go girl, but you're right. I mean, uh, it's also shrouded. It, it, it is in a word it's complex and right. That, <laughs> So As well, are most well humans, frankly, right? Yeah, I mean, that's no what makes history interesting. No doubt. Well, my last question for you is what do you wish more people knew about her? Because if they know about her at all, it's probably the anecdote that she was acting president. But what do you wish more people knew about her? What's something that gets lost in her in the telling of her of her story? I think there's a big thing and a small thing. The small thing is she was actually really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that if you read her letters and read her memoir, she just comes across as witty and clever in a way that I think gets lost in this whole, uh, you know, Madam President stuff. I think the bigger thing is sometimes women who make history have to pretend they aren't making history. And I think that was particularly true 100 years ago when women could not legitimately claim positions of power. Those were not open to them. And so the only power they could yield was behind the scenes and it behooved them to cover that up. And so I think if anybody learns anything from this book, it's to sort of look a little bit differently about how history is made, particularly by women, and maybe expand that definition to think through the ways that people cover up their role in history and and make compromises and uh, curate their own image for those of us reading about it 100 years later. Well, the book isn't, if if listeners, you couldn't tell from this conversation, the book is incredibly compelling. It's called Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. It is out right now. Rebecca, that is so, such a compelling conversation and book as well. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Rachel. It's been fun. Thank you so much for coming by, Rebecca. Again, the book is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. It's out right now. Next week, we've got chats about health and wellness, some of my favorite topics to talk about these days, specifically our metabolism that I think you'll find interesting, and an episode for you on the power of being a sensitive person and how it can actually be a superpower. Very interesting. Talk soon. Thank you.